Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So today we are at episode 167, and today's guest is one of the guests that I've been wanting to get on for a very, very long time. I have read both of Lara's books. I've been following her for a very long time now, and the information, the resources that uh, Lara puts out is incredible. So today's guest is Lara Bryden. Lara is a naturopathic doctor and a women's health activist. Lara's mission is to help women achieve healthy menstrual cycles without the use of hormonal birth control. Lara's two books, one is the period repair manual and the other one is the hormone repair manual, which is kind of mainly aimed for those over 40s. And this kind of offers practical solutions for period and hormone problems. If you are a woman or if you are a coach, this will change how you see, fuel, and nourish your body if you are a man or anything like that this book will change how you understand anything if you are a coach and you haven't got these two books please 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 click the links in the bio and buy the books today they are absolutely incredible so the podcast today we talk about how she got into the field we talk about why carbs are key for females we talk about the most common symptoms for PMS and how we can actually deal with these and work with these. We talk about PCOS. Is the pill the answer for it? We talk about the kind of the four main stages of perimenopause. We also talk about the role of testosterone and insulin weight gain. And we talk about some of the kind of the protocols for common perimenopause symptoms, including night sweats, insomnia, migraines and heavy periods. And then we kind of talk about the, the incredible books. So guys, if you haven't got the books, please go ahead and get them. And so I hope you enjoy the episode with Lara. Lara, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I think you're one of the most anticipated guests I've had on for a long time because I put it up in my story a little while ago and to say my DMs went a little bit nuts, particularly with PTs and coaches and that side <laughs> of things over in Ireland. Like your two books are incredible. So massive congratulations on those. Thanks so much. Yeah. I'm glad they're helping women, helping exactly. people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They definitely are. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you kind of got into this field? For sure. So I started as an evolutionary biologist. That's always just a quirky thing about my background. I was studying, doing field work, studying wildlife, and I, I published a peer-reviewed paper about um, for sex differences in foraging behavior in animals. So, you know, that goes way back. That gives you a bit of insight into how I, the lens I see things through. And then I graduated as an, I went on to train as a naturopathic doctor in Canada, hence my Canadian accent, and graduated in 97. And then I've pretty much been in full-time practice since then, treating mostly women, mostly period hormonal problems through those last 25 years. And then over the last five or six years, I've written a couple books to try to share what I've learned with the world. I actually, in the beginning, I wrote my first book for my patients, actually, just to try to make our consults more efficient. I thought, if you could read this book before you come talk to me, then we can build on that. It's some base, basic knowledge that I wanted everyone to have. But the books have done really well. And I'm just so happy that it's they're helping women everywhere. They're a massive, of course, they're really yeah. handy resource. They're so handy. That's great. Now I live down under. So I, I lived in Sydney, Australia for a long time, and I'm calling you from New Zealand today. Yeah, my, I think I had someone in uh, Australia last week. I've got someone in America next week. So it's uh, yeah. the power of Zoom during this weird and wonderful time. For sure. Um, one of the things that kind of comes up an awful lot, I think for men and women, but I think in particular women is in relation to carbohydrates. 
and the diet yes. culture that's out there carbohydrates carbohydrates are not evil uh i think mm-hmm. i think that's the reason i have no hair is pulling that out with that sentence so <laughs> can you explain why carbs are key for females and why they need a little bit more than people actually realize yeah well as you can imagine there's it's a nuanced conversation. I, I think I want to start by differentiating young women of reproductive age. So I put, I'd say young under 30, that age group, they are quite different from a woman in her late 40s, yeah. you know, just hormonally. There's just so many different things going on. But mainly for young women, it's about calibrating their hormonal system, establishing ovulatory cycles, which are natural menstrual cycles with regular ovulation. I put a big emphasis on that in my first book, Period Repair Manual. And ovulation is not that easy to do. So one of the things that young women often will always need is enough food coming in. And that's the the brain, the part of the brain called the hypothalamus waiting for those signals from the environment that there's enough food to make a baby. It's going to be okay. There's enough food. And depending on a woman's ancestry, the brain might decide, oh, wait, oh, there's not not enough food and shut down menstruation. So that is, it really depends on ancestry and how likely it is to happen. But for some young women, that seems to also really depend on a carbohydrate signal, not just calories total, not just protein and fat, but carbs coming in. So that's something I've observed that young women can lose their periods to a low carb diet. Now, because I've written about that. I've, you know, tweeted about that. I, I've got a lot of pushback from the low carb community saying that's crazy. You know, we have all these women in their forties who are just thriving on a low carb diet. It's like, okay, that's different. You know, a woman in per- later in perimenopause might do better on a lower carb diet. It, it doesn't mean she has to have no carbs. It sounds like I, you were in agreement about this. You know, there's lots of different ways to cultivate metabolic flexibility and encourage the body to be able to burn ketones without necessarily going keto 24-7. You know, I just think there's there's so much room to move in this. And we need starch for the microbiome, potentially for the nervous system, for sleep. (laughs) So yeah, there's a lot of things going on. Yeah. (laughs) And I think one people I think one of the things that kind of comes up an awful lot, especially in the kind of the over forties book, is in relation to the gut microbiome and the amount of impact that has in general and in particular for it can have a massive impact on on loads of different factors for women of all ages, men as well, uh, in that aspect. And one of the things that kind of comes up an awful lot for girl out of a reproductive age is the likes of PMS. Um you have your hacks for the PMS and and they're so simple, but I think, I think simple is always, they're kind of like, what's the catch is what kind of people sometimes think when you, when something is made so simple, can you kind of go into those little hacks that you have? Yeah. So in the new book, I expanded the mood chapter, the mood section and broke it down into what I see are kind of often four main Potential factors affecting premenstrual mood. The big one, the first and foremost, is histamine or mast cell activation, which if you look at the symptoms of mast cell activation or high histamine and the symptoms of PMS, there is a lot of overlap. So that would include headaches, irritability, insomnia, sometimes you know nasal congestion, hives sometimes. Um, so, And it makes sense from a hormonal perspective because higher levels of estrogen 
actually cause a mast cell release and a histamine release. So I think a lot of the symptoms we attribute to so-called estrogen dominance, a term I don't really use, some, a lot of the symptoms are actually symptoms of high histamine. So my biggest hack for that is, to, well, treat the gut, you know, stabilize the situation in the gut because that's where a lot of the mast cells live and dial down histamine containing or histamine releasing foods. The big one for most, for a lot of women is cow's dairy. So as you see in the book, normal cow's dairy, I would, I would classify that as dairy that contains A1 casein, which is different from goat or sheep dairy or some forms of cow dairy don't have that protein. And that simple change of removing that dairy can be a game changer for some women for mood. Now, I'll acknowledge that's not going to be what works for everyone, but that's definitely a big one. And interestingly, and I can send you this for the show notes, there's currently a study going on in, at Deakin University in Australia about A1 casein and premenstrual mood. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I mean, the results are not ready yet. They're just recruiting for the study, but I can, I'm excited about that to see what they find. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's brilliant. No, because I think that the, the dairy thing, I think, has been dairy has got an unfair rep in a lot of elements and has been blamed on a lot, an awful lot of things. And I don't think people realize why it is or why it kind of people can struggle to break it down. I think even when you kind of look back at through adolescence, if people have struggled through the likes of having issues with their ears or throats and stuff when they were kids. It's not a lack that it's not lactose intolerance. I mean, yeah. lactose intolerance is a thing. Yeah. But what you're describing. 100%. That, that's the marker. I, and I ask my patients, did you have recurring tonsillitis or chest infections when you were a kid? Because that's what tells you about, basically, it's about one in three people, I would estimate, men and women, who form something in the gut from A1 casing called BCM7. BCM7. It's a, a little peptide that is quite inflammatory. Not everyone forms that peptide. So the two out of three people that don't do that are fine with dairy, basically. And so, of course, it, it this is where some of the research is going to be confusing because people say, well, dairy seems to be quite beneficial in lots of ways. It's a, you know, it's a source of protein, but yet, yet you have these one in three people who get a pretty massive inflammatory reaction from it. And there's no way to test. Well, the way to test would be a urine test for that peptide, but that's not done clinically. But the clinical profile of that history of recurring infection is a pretty good marker. And so that's quite a simple intervention, especially because A2 dairy, such as goat and sheep, is quite easy to access these days, at least down here. And have you got any other hacks and stuff like that for yeah. the likes of PMS? Because I know there's yeah. like a few more. Yeah, so I, I list four in the new book. So yeah. I talk about the mast cell dairy side of things. Then I talk about iodine, iodine, because... It's my it's one of my favorite nutrients for women's health. It can be a game changer for especially if it's a strong breast pain or breast tenderness picture with it. Iodine helps to downregulate estrogen receptors, kind of stabilize them, makes women less sensitive to estrogen. So that I talk about in the book a little bit about some safety checks around that because if someone has existing thyroid disease, especially autoimmune thyroid disease, which is quite common then they need to be very careful with the dose. Otherwise, I'm often recommending to my patients in the dose of one to three milligrams, which is quite a bit higher than what you might get from a multivitamin, for example. And that can, for some women, that's all they need. This is like, this is the kind of work I like to do is if you can hit the bullseye yeah. with what they need, 
you don't have to have a whole list of things to take. It's like some women are like, I, I'm good. I've taken the ID. Now I'm good, you know, and they can carry on. So the other two things I list are pro- high prolactin, not high as in medically high, because that's a different situation, but a high normal kind of borderline high prolactin is quite a common picture. And those are the women who would do, do quite well on a herbal medicine called Vitex or Chase Tree, which is quite popular. Some women swear by it. Some women get no help from it. And that's why I think there's, you know, some underlying yeah. reasons of who that, that works for. And then finally, I talk about the role of progesterone in mood and how for a lot of women enhancing their progesterone production or taking more progesterone in the form of a progesterone cream or a capsule like Eutrogestin or Prometrium is quite helpful for mood, can again, can be the main thing that they need. There's a small group of women, about one in 20, I'd recommend, I, I'd estimate who actually don't feel well on progesterone. So there, again, there's that bit of nuance and, and trying to troubleshoot that. On the topic of progesterone, one of my key messages, and I really want to get this across to your audience, is that I'm talking about the hormone progesterone that we make after ovulation that you can take in a couple of forms, but it's very different from the progestins that are in hormonal birth control. And I think in women's health, if there could just be one, if I could have a little wish list of like one thing to change, it would be for everyone, journalists, doctors, everyone to stop referring to progestin contraceptive drugs as progesterone, because I feel like that is where a lot of the confusion comes from. Progestins in hormonal birth control have a lot of side effects, including hair loss and mood side effects and potentially not that safe for breasts, for example. And progesterone, the real hormone, is the opposite in all of those aspects. I don't know. And I think that is a massive aspect. Even when you see, when you, I know I've got clients who are nurses and stuff and, and like sometimes they're not even aware of the differences and stuff and doctors and stuff no. that I've spoken no. to. And it, it's quite, it's quite alarming that, that like doctors and stuff that are out there dealing with the public on a daily basis aren't aware of the differences. Um, I think people like yourself are putting out incredible information to kind of try and educate those, that, that kind of side of things as well. In relation to, because another one, another kind of thing that's kind of coming up more and more is in relation to the likes of, say, PCOS, because it is so, so common with one in 10, one in 10 having it. And I think it's important to understand that there are various different types there to understand, like, that every single girl is completely different who has it um, as well. In relation to, like, can you explain what is PCOS? What's the difference between the different, the different ones. Um, and then we'll kind of go through the other questions that we kind of alluded to. For sure. PCOS is, I would argue, one of the most misunderstood women's health conditions out there. It's, it, it really is, a, in some ways, a back to the drawing board kind of thing. It needs a name change. It needs a complete revamp just to, for, you know, to be a useful diagnosis. So essentially... It's the situation of having excess male hormones in women when all other causes of that have been ruled out. That, that would be the simplest way to describe it. It's, and so in that sense, it's what's, would you, what you could call a catch-all or an umbrella diagnosis. So it's really just a description of a woman with high male hormones, often not ovulating regularly because that's what high male hormones does to women. 
And within that group, there could be lots of different reasons for that happening. This is what I mean by a catch-all diagnosis. I mean, there's certain physiological pathways to that state of high androgens that are different from each other. So for example, insulin resistance is a, a driver of high male hormones in women. And, and actually conversely, um, testosterone drives insulin resistance. So that's a vicious cycle that is quite central to a lot of women that have PCOS. But then you can have a totally different situation where women have high androgens or male hormones coming from their adrenal glands and don't have insulin resistance and have a, a just entirely different thing going on. And so that's where in my work, I've tried to break it down into what I call the four types. They're the four functional types of like through the lens of what is driving the high androgens in this individual. And I get a lot more traction with that with my own patients than just try, which is quite different than just trying to fit everyone into the same yeah. box. It's like, it's very much like that analogy of trying to put a, a square peg into a round hole. It's like, if you've got someone who doesn't have insulin resistance, you know, has a totally different thing going on and you're trying to treat her for insulin resistance, nothing is going to work. And the best example of that, I again, this is one of my talking points I always try to get across. There's something else going on in PCOS, which is that, unfortunately, women are being misdiagnosed with it. So there's, it goes both ways. So there are a lot of women with PCOS who don't know they have it, who have, it hasn't been picked up. Um, and conversely, there are some women who are being told they have PCOS when they don't, when they actually have undereating or what's called hypothalamic amenorrhea. And the way that comes about is the mistaken use of ultrasound to try to diagnose this condition. So a pelvic ultrasound is a definitely a useful, like it's, it's an important diagnostic technique for all kinds of different things in gynecology. So I don't want to give the impression that I don't think an ultrasound is worth having. It can be, but what you really don't want to do is have someone see so-called polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound and then make a diagnosis based on that because that is not accurate. Polycystic ovaries are common. They're like, they come and go every month. It's just the number of follicles or eggs that happen to be present that particular moment in time and whether ovulation is occurring at that particular moment in time. Younger women have more eggs or follicles, so they're always more likely to have so-called polycystic ovaries. They're not cysts, although it is also possible to have ovarian cysts. That's a separate topic. So this is a real problem. And it's not just me saying this. A lot of people are saying this whole, and the fact that the condition is called polycystic is highly problematic as well, because it's really nothing. You can have full-blown hormonal PCOS, high androgens, and have normal looking ovaries on ultrasound. Conversely, you can have polycystic ovaries and have either nothing going on or have lost your period due to undereating. You get what I'm saying? Like, so if, if you are under eating, if a young woman has lost her period to under eating and then is to then told she has PCOS based on a ultrasound and then Googles or gets advice to go low carb based on that, she is in trouble. Like she will never get her period back at that point and without a complete turnaround of strategy. So I, I'm quite passionate about it because I have seen, just in my own practice, I've seen so many young women Yes, 12, 18 months into going the wrong direction with what they um, need to do to get, yeah. What is the best metric or what is the best tool to find out if you have PCOS then or is there one kind of slice that fits up? Yeah, 
Well, the number one thing is there has to be some evidence of high androgens, like significant androgens, not just a little bit of post-pill acne breakout, but some degree of facial hair. You have to ask women about it too, because of course you're not going to see it because yeah. they're waxing, which is totally what they would expect. You know, you don't expect to see it. So you have to kind of ask and get a sense of how strong that symptom is. And then some, and the other symptom of high male hormone would be significant jawline acne or breakouts. And sometimes you see high androgens on a blood test. And then the second criteria is other causes of that have been ruled out. Other causes would be something called adrenal hyperplasia, which is quite common, high prolactin, which can cause androgen symptoms. So the doctor should be doing that work, obviously, and coming up with the right diagnosis. And the other just tip, it's a little bit more technical, but anyone who's more interested can find more about this on my blog. I look, I, use a, I look at the ratio between the pituitary hormones, LH and FSH. I find it's quite reliable. So if it's a baseline like a day two, day two or three of the cycle reading, or would have to be random day if there's no period at all, but in that case, you do have to think about if a period comes later, that changes the context of that blood test. But just to say quickly, with under eating, there's usually a quite a low LH compared to FSH. So that's low luteinizing hormone compared to follicle-stimulating stim- follicle hormone. With PCOS, there's usually a high LH picture. So I would say that's the most precise. I, I use that quite a lot with my own patients. And then in, can you give kind of like a, a brief recap on what are the main, the main brackets that you put people into for PCOS, the, the, the different ones? Yeah. Yeah. So once I've decided, okay, that is definitely an androgen PCOS picture, Number one is insulin resistance. It's about testing for insulin resistance, which is not testing for glucose. I test for insulin, the hormone. And you you, typically that corresponds with abdominal weight gain, but not always. You can have a pretty normal looking weight person who has insulin resistance. So you do have to have a look at that. And then if there's no insulin resistance, then I move into my other three types are post-pill, which is just a temporary situation of trying to come off specifically the progestins, drosperinone or cipterone. We, we can, I've written about that. that because those are anti-androgen drugs. So you can get this androgen surge, trying to come off them, which is temporary for a couple of years. The next type would be inflammatory PCOS, which is really kind of a higher androgen state or higher androgen sensitivity driven by the kind of gut immune inflammation associated often with like autoimmune or gluten or kind of dairy sensitivity, that kind of thing. And then the fourth would be adrenal PCOS, which I mentioned earlier, which is really quite distinct. It's, it's actually more, it's higher levels of DHEAS, which is an adrenal androgen, but often there's normal ovulation and there's no insulin resistance. Amazing. And that's, and, that, yeah. and I think, I think if you want to, if people want to listen back to that as well, in relation to the, the insulin resistance, are there any kind of supplements that you kind of go to for, for people? I know there was one in particular that a lot of people were kind of asking questions was in relation to berberine. Um, yeah. and I know one of those in relation to berberine, it's kind of like, it's important that if you are on kind of, I'm going to let you talk about berberine rather than me take over the podcast. Yeah, yeah that's fine. <laughs> well, it's berberine is, I do prescribe it quite often. Yeah. It, just to be fair, it's one of the supplements that you have a little bit more toxicity potential than others. Yeah. I mean, it's not a lot of women use it. A lot. It, it, and it, this, it has, it's had quite a lot of research, so that's good. 
just have to look at the safety profile of it. You don't take it during pregnancy, for example. You, you have to be careful combining it with other medications. I don't like the idea of women, of anyone taking it super long term. I usually prescribe it in an eight-week course, five days a week. Some, I, I, I've been a little bit careful with it because it has some antimicrobial properties. It alters liver function to some extent, not necessarily in a bad way. So it has done well in some clinical trials for improving insulin sensitivity. It also has the nice side benefit of being antimicrobial and therefore helping skin, which is why one of the reasons I would prescribe it, like it can help to clear up acne quite well, especially in combination with dairy-free. So that's berberine. The other two supplements for insulin resistance, especially insulin-resistant PCOS is magnesium, which we can circle back to. I'm a, huge fan of, I'm a huge fan of magnesium. <laughs> but the third one is inositol. And yeah. whenever my own inositol, and whenever I start talking about it, I seriously feel like I'm doing an infomercial because it's it's yeah, that it's good. Awesome. Like it's it it is also evidence based. It made yeah. it into the 2018 international guidelines for PCOS treatment. So it's right there. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. There, it's it's gone through enough clinical trials to actually arrive at in that place. You know, to be that kind of medicine, and it's safe even when you're trying for pregnancy even when you're pregnant it's yeah. not expensive you see what i mean about it infomercial it's like it's it's just so easy to use and it's long term like if you're going to use it any of these treat well berberine might be shorter term but in general with pcos there's a long turnaround like you start something and you might not really see results for 4 to 6 months that's normal i mean hopefully your skin will improve a little bit but the changes in terms of period regularity and facial hair and things like that take a long, long time. So it's important to not, it's important to have realistic expectations about how this condition works and how it will respond to treatment. I'm delighted you brought up my own stuff. I'm delighted. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. Is, it, I, I think the, the one that you brought up there is, is magnesium. I think yeah. magnesium is kind of like the Holy Grail and it's, it comes up a, go, a, go a few times in both books. Uh, yeah. Can you t- kind of talk us about kind of the eight ways in which kind of magnesium rescues hormones? And I know this was yeah. something you put up on your blog as well. Yeah, that's what that's the most popular blog post on my blog. Yeah. Is eight ways magnesium rescues hormones. So the first way is it calms the nervous system, which, as you can imagine, is pretty important for female hormones for everything. It it actually helps to regulate the stress response system or the adrenal axis. It improves insulin sensitivity, and there's a lot of research about that, actually. And some scientists think, you know, um, chronic borderline low-level magnesium deficiency is one of the causes of insulin resistance, the epidemic of it. Of course, everyone's got their own theory about what's driving the epidemic of insulin resistance, but magnesium reduction in our food supply could be part of it. It also supports mitochondria. I'm guessing you've talked about mitochondria on this podcast a few times. <laughs> the, it, it, the mitochondria love magnesium. They're full of magnesium as well as some other nutrients. So it's working there. And the fact that most of our magnesium is inside cells, inside mitochondria, is one of the reasons you cannot detect magnesium deficiency with a blood test. I really need to emphasize that because magnesium is also an electrolyte that the body keeps in a tight balance in the serum, if that makes sense. So measuring what your serum levels of magnesium means nothing because 
if your serum level was out, you would, would be dead probably. <laughs> like it's that, you know, your body is maintaining that. So that's not really telling you anything about what's happening inside the cells. So that's, uh, I forget where we're at in terms of like the eight ways, but it also um, promotes promote sleep, which is one of the reasons it's popular. Um, it activates vitamin D. That's actually something I don't, I don't know if a lot of people know, but if you're seeing a chronically low level of D, vitamin D on a blood test and you can't get it up, no matter how much D you take, that can be a sign of magnesium deficiency, which is just a little clinical pearl there. Because I know something I've seen is sometimes women taking or being prescribed huge doses of vitamin D and it's not working. I'm like there's something else going on. The solution is not just to take more and more. Um, that might not be the eight that I list, but pretty close. It slows aging. That's, it, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's spot on. I think if, if people want to kind of read the, the full blog, head over to uh, Lara's yeah. website. I think there's, it's, it goes into a little bit more detail on that. I think we'll go on to the next stage of the life of a woman, which is kind of going over to the, the, the over 40 side yeah. and going towards the, the perimenopause side. I think one of the, the misconceptions that there are many misconceptions of perimenopause and menopause and you have a point in the books and the in the, the second book in relation to what you talk about the four phases of perimenopause can you take us yeah. through those because i think there's one misconception which is the first one which i don't yeah. think a lot of people realize well perimenopause the process which i can describe starts yeah. when periods are still regular yeah. So this is, and this is what my messaging currently is. If you were born before 1984, <laughs> you are in the territory of second puberty or perimenopause. So I'm trying to alert women. So this is something that starts in your late thirties or forties. And in that regard, we have to all acknowledge women at that age are still young, right? This We have this um, stereotype that menopause is when I don't know how we define old, but we have this idea that's off in the future, like in your 50s or 60s. It's like, no, it's starting in your late 30s. It doesn't mean you're old then. It just means you've embarked on a normal hormonal event that is the anywhere between two up to 12 years before the final period. I call it second puberty. It's analogous to first puberty in lots, so many ways. And it's just a hormonal change. I've, with my book, I've tried to um, disconnect it from aging. So aging is also allowed and okay. And you know, I think aging is is also normal. But I think we need to we can separate the two because perimenopause happens for some women. It happens a lot younger than for other women. It doesn't mean they're aging faster. That's in their genetic blueprint of what age this is going to happen for them. And you can still you can still become pregnant in the earlier phases of perimenopause. So I'm just trying to really. I mean, if you're sitting there thinking, "What? I can't be in perimenopause," and feeling really gutted by that. I would just say to you, it's fine. It's okay to be in perimenopause. It doesn't mean your life's over or anything yeah. like that. It's just acknowledging what's happening, which is that basically we're starting to, our ovulations are becoming less robust. This is, again, not nothing you've done wrong. This is just part of, our, we're programmed to do this from an evolutionary perspective. I have a section in the book about that. I think it's actually, I think we evolved this. We evolve the trait to stop reproducing when we're still quite young because it's better for the group basically you can people can look at my book to look at the grandmother hypothesis of of menopause and we start to lose progesterone and progesterone was always hard to make because you can only make it with ovulation and remember you cannot take progesterone in the form of hormonal birth control because it doesn't 
exist that way. So we have to make it or take it in another way, which I do talk about. But when we start to lose progesterone, that's when all these symptoms start to shine through, like heavier periods, increased migraines, sleep problems, potentially, because progesterone has quite a stabilizing, calming effect on the nervous system, which we, you and I spoke a little bit about yeah. with when we talked about mood. So lose, you'll feel it when you lose progesterone. Most of us do. And so that's phase one, is when your periods are still regular, but you're making less progesterone. Your periods might start coming closer together. That's a pretty normal part of the process. Like you might shift from having a 30-day cycle to a 26-day cycle. That's phase one. And from that point in time, it could still be eight or 10 years before your final period. And then phase two is a few years later when you start, your cycle starts to be less regular. You might vary up by more than seven days between, as you're counting from day one to day one of the cycle, there'll be more variation with that. Phase three is a few years later, which is when you start to have like just more serious variation. Like you might go a couple months without a period. Keeping in mind there, of course, there's always other reasons for missing periods. So you can't necessarily just think, oh, that's perimenopause. I mean, it might be your thyroid, could be stress, could be overtraining, it could be under eating, it could be insulin resistance. I give a patient story in the book about a woman who thought, assumed she was in menopause because she was 40 something. And then we discovered, no, you've just lost your period because of a shift to kind of more severe insulin resistance. So, and then she was able to reverse that. So keeping in mind all the time that it, it's worth talking to your doctor and figuring out what's going on, but don't come away from the doctor with just a prescription for the pill, because unfortunately that's often what happens. Um, phase four is where I am right now. I'm happy to share that. That's um, the waiting room between wondering if, was that my last period? And going 12 months without a period, which is usually more, much more than 12 months because you go nine months thinking, was that it? Was that it? And it's like, oh, no, got another period. So then you have to start counting all over again to reach the 12 months because that's when you graduate to or achieve menopause, which is the life phase that begins 12 months after your final ever period. And menopause itself is generally without symptoms. So there's a few things that happen in menopause. I talk about that in a chapter called um, What Comes After. Mainly vaginal dryness is one of the big ones, but there's some other issues around bone health. But the symptoms occur during perimenopause, so during 40s, basically, is that's when the night sweats and the hot flushes and migraines and can be at their worst. And then usually by the time you're in menopause or a couple years into menopause, you're good and mood mood goes back to normal or you often better than before. Because that's what the research shows is that women in their 50s, 60s, 70s are likely to be the happiest they've ever been, which is quite interesting. Like that's, you know, that piece of research and then kind of confirming that as I move into that phase myself, that's, I think women need to know that, right? Like this is, yeah. there's a, kind of secret waiting, which is actually that it's, it's fine. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a happy time potentially. Yeah. Oh, a nice way of putting it kind of like the waiting room before kind of yeah. the next chapter. It's kind of a nice yeah. way to put it out. Um, yeah. I, m- I remember reading that in the book. And I was like, that's, that's a very nice way. And it kind of like life starts after, uh, yeah. just 
relief and all this kind of stuff that you've had, yeah. to, had to put up with for, for whatever amount of time is uh, you mentioned about the the kind of the common symptoms and stuff with perimenopause so i'll go through kind of like the main four or five and if you can kind of give like a little bit of some of the, ta- the tactics or some of the protocols that you use for them it would be sure. amazing so we'll go through the first one which is the night sweats yeah well all of a lot of the symptoms are i'll just preface it by saying they're yeah. all coming from the brain the brain is rewiring, recalibrating during this process. So it's all about supporting brain health. In terms of night sweats, they're often premenstrual night sweats, especially in those earlier phases of perimenopause. Okay, top three. Well, top one is my, as you saw in the book, that combination of magnesium and the amino acid taurine. That supports brain energy that calms the nervous system. The brain loves that, basically that combination. So that... Plus, and I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but quitting alcohol. Yeah, I've said that to a few clients recently. They're (laughs) in Ireland. That doesn't really uh, work. Yeah, like, uh, again, just apologies to everyone listening, but I I don't know what to say. Like, it is, I would say, a universal experience. I can't think of any perimenopausal woman who has, woman in her 40s, who hasn't said, yeah you know, when I stop alcohol, I stop flushing, I stop night sweats. I, you know, it's, it's just, unfortunately, because of this brain recalibration, brain re- rewiring, it's just, per- perimenopause and alcohol just don't mix. It, it, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to tell you. And I guess what I say to women is you can, once you achieve menopause, hooray, like you can probably go back to having those few glasses of wine in a week. Honestly, I would say that's the upper limit though. Like, just to, I mean, not to harp on alcohol too much, but if you look at the research, here's just a fun fact, not fun. Any amount of alcohol, even a few drinks in a week, increases the risk of breast cancer more than estrogen or hormone therapy does, right? Like, it's not a small thing. So, I mean, okay, to be fair, I mean, the risk, the, the increase in risk of breast cancer is still relatively small, but it's quite significant compared to other things that we worry quite a bit about, right? Like like women would know, okay, hormone therapy is a risk for breast cancer, but if you put it in that perspective, so especially if there's any history of, well, personal history for sure, or family history of breast cancer, I would say take a serious look at alcohol because the research is not ambiguous. Like it's it's quite clear. So, and all this said, I feel bad. You know, I I love the occasional beer as well. So I've, I've just... For me, it comes down to, I tell this story quite often, I'll be looking at having a beer with dinner, thinking that would be so nice. I would love that so much. And then I think I could have that and then pop awake at 3 a.m. all sweaty, or I could not have that beer and I could sleep through the night. So it's like, when it comes down to it, it's like, I think I just will have a low alcohol, a no alcohol beer, a low alcohol beer and sleep instead. So yeah, that's, we got onto that from the night sweats side of things. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> so you, you can blame Lara for that clients. You can, you can blame Lara. Yeah. Lara. Uh, yeah. The next one is the insomnia. It's related. So a lot of these things are related. So because of this brain rewiring, brain recalibration. So that's the beauty of it is you don't necessarily have to have different treatments for all different symptoms. It'd be the same, It'd be magnesium, taurine, no alcohol. And also, I guess for sleep in particular, one of my favorite hacks, which I've only discovered in the last few years, but I use myself, is the amino acid glycine at bedtime. It's 
so nice. <laughs> it's so like, it's so, yeah, it, it, it does. It really does solidify or help sleep. So, and that's something, again, it's inexpensive. It's easy to take, no side effects. So that's a, awesome. a good one. Yeah. I think the, the one I've probably seen very common is the likes of migraines. How to yes. kind of work with, with work with or against migraines depends how you sure. want to phrase it. So perimenopause is a time of increased migraines because yeah. of the loss of progesterone and the crazy ups and downs of estrogen and the histamine response. <laughs> the whole combination is a recipe for migraines in people who have a vulnerability to migraines, of course. So the strategy is all the things I've just said, magnesium, taurine, progesterone potentially that's a case when actually taking progesterone can be quite helpful either in the form of a progesterone cream if you can access it or something in the uk or would be or in ireland i'm sure it's the same uh is the brand name other countries it's called prometrium can really help with migraines the other stuff with going on with migraines is and i talk about this in the book in terms of a dietary strategy it's about first determining if there's a gluten sensitivity not every woman with migraines has a problem with gluten, but a lot do. And so if you can look for some of the other markers of a gluten problem, that would be something like if you have autoimmune thyroid disease, that's pretty much a clincher that you've got a gluten problem. And in that case, sometimes removing gluten is, has to happen as well as the magnesium and the progesterone and the other things just to get a response to reduce the frequency and intensity of migraines. There's also histamine. We've talked about plays a role in migraines. And for some women there can be some improvement with a lower carb diet. That's if there's a significant amount of insulin resistance that can be worsening migraines because of what that does to brain energy. I talk a lot in the book about the energy crisis in the brain, especially in the later phases of perimenopause. Yeah, so this this circles back a little bit to improving metabolic flexibility, helping your brain cells to burn ketones for energy and whatever it takes to do that. And that doesn't necessarily mean a keto diet. That can be supporting the mitochondria with magnesium and taurine. It, exercise, sorry, movement. Sorry, yeah. throughout all of this, yeah. yeah, building muscle and being active is huge. I mean, for some women, that's all they need to do for a lot of these symptoms. So I don't want that to get lost in the, yeah, in the forest here. <laughs> We're talking about lots, of, but exercise is huge. Yeah, exercise resistance training is huge. Um, yes, resistance training with weights. I think sometimes uh, ladies can be afraid of kind of that's that word bulky kind of comes in, um, which is which is understandable. And then, and then, but it takes an awful lot of effort to put get muscle and if you define that a little bit harder the uh, research well as i'm sure you know this the research around strength training is a little bit ridiculous like there's so much research in terms of what it can help and in short i would say it's because the brain loves strength training all various mechanisms between the muscles and the brain it improves brain health brain energy like this rewiring process of the brain is made better by building muscle, basically. Yeah, big time, massively. And the last one is heavy periods. Yeah, at a start. Heavy, especially in the later phases of perimenopause. So if you're listening, 
and you're, you know, you've been bleeding through your clothes and, you know, your doctor's talking about removing your uterus because of your heavy bleeding, then get the book because I, I know what you're talking about. You know, I've certainly had lots of patients in that situation. Um, I'll just run through it quickly. Dairy-free, and I give a patient story about that, can make a difference. It's not necessarily going to be enough for everyone. Keeping your iron levels up, hugely important. Progesterone as opposed to progestin. Well, progestin is obviously lightened periods as well, but progesterone can also lighten periods, but without some of the side effects. And for what it's worth, I just need to touch on the hormonal IUD because it can be a lifesaver. Look, I think... The hormonal, so the hormonal IUD or the hormonal coil, it releases a progestin called levonorgestrel into the uterus. It lightens flow by 90%, 9-0. So, you know, that is obviously a big plus. I describe in both books why I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a doing, I'm not a cheerleader for the hormonal IUD. Like obviously it can have side effects, but it's, I guess I would say of all the types of hormonal birth control, it's the one that makes sense in some situations. A lot of my patients have it. You can do have the hormonal IUD plus the other things, plus the dairy-free, plus the progesterone capsules. So it's it's not necessarily an either-or situation. And if having the hormonal IUD means you don't have to have a hysterectomy or have your uterus out, that's a good thing because you actually need your uterus for structure in the pelvis and for... It's kind of interesting. There's a bit of research that just having the uterus in place is good for the brain, <laughs> which I know sounds weird, but like the body's connected, right? There's um, I think it's something to do with the vagus nerve connects to the cervix. I, this, I mean, the stuff going on with, I, I guess I, my, one of my goals is if possible, hang on to your uterus. And if that means using the hormonal IUD for five years, then so be it. That would be my angle on it. Perfect. The last yeah. question, because I know we have we have time for time before we kind of go on to talk about the the books, um, the role of testosterone and insulin in weight gain, because I know that is a big big thing that yeah. can cause a lot of anguish for for, yeah. for some people. Yeah. So. Perimen- well, the later phases of perimenopause and men- the early phases of menopause is a time of what I describe in the book of relative testosterone dominance. So we shift, actually our testosterone production goes up ever so slightly, which is a slight interruption in terms of overall in both sexes, testosterone's on a slow, gradual decline as we age. But with women, there's this kind of uptick around perimenopause, probably actually to give us the precursors we need to make um, estrogen in the peripheral tissues as we head into menopause. But the problem is, in the wrong setting, that that can drive insulin resistance. So there's quite a lot of research around that in women, excess testosterone drives insulin resistance. That's what's happened in PCOS. So menopause is kind of analogous to that in a way. Now, which is not to say that testosterone is all bad because women do, we do require some, well, we have, and we benefit from some level of androgen or testosterone, but it's only if it's high in comparison to estrogen and progesterone. And also, and I know this is a little technical, but I just, I'll mention it and then people can refer to my book. There's a hormone called sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG, which we both sexes have, but in women, we have a lot of it and it binds up testosterone and kind of shelters us from it, kind of has it in storage for if you need it, but mostly it's not interacting with the tissues. 
And if you have lower levels of SHBG, that also exposes you to too much testosterone potentially and can drive weight gain. So there's different weight reasons that might be lower. Just losing estrogen with menopause is one of the reasons that drops. Um, Having underactive thyroid drops SHBG. Having insulin resistance drops SHBG. So I guess short version is if you're noticing, you know, new facial hair with the later phases of perimenopause and you're getting that kind of male pattern body fat distribution around the middle, that's partly insulin resistance and partly this testosterone dominance that I'm talking about. So just be careful. I mean, you know, work with reversing insulin resistance. Strength training is excellent for all of this again. And just be careful taking testosterone. I'll just put that out there. It's a kind of a popular prescription with some doctors and I'm not totally anti it, but I just think you need to be a little bit careful. It should always be, if it's going to be taken, it's often prescribed for improving libido and things like that. It just, it really needs to be combined with estrogen and progesterone and also not, not too much of it. So hopefully that's helpful. Perfect. Yeah. Now that, that, is, that is spot on. The last question is in relation to the two books. I've got the two books here beside me in a show before it came on air. There's notes coming out of its ears yeah. and dog ears and everything yeah. coming out in the pages. Where can people find out about the period repair manual and the hormone repair manual? Yeah. Where can people buy it? Yeah. So they're, they're available Amazon and most online book outlets. You can request it in your local bookshop. You can request it in your library. I believe both books are in quite a few libraries around the world. And of course, I, I link to the books from my blog, which is my main central location, larabryden.com. And all of my social media is at larabryden. So I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah. So guys, I would highly recommend getting books if you are a lady, if you are a coach, if you are a doctor, if you're anything, just go get the books. Genuinely, the two books have changed a lot of things, little aspects and make you think a lot about different things and different ways to phrase things for me as a practitioner. Um, That's great. And so it's definitely helped me a lot. So Lara, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on very early in the morning. Uh, yeah so thank you for you exactly yeah yeah. so thank you so much for for coming on thanks for having me really hope you enjoyed that episode with lara um it was an incredible episode and i know there's so much insight so much useful information regarding perimenopause pcos how to kind of like magnesium and the power of it so much information so if you're a coach or if you're a woman or you're going through perimenopause or whatever it may be re-listen to it re-listen to it take the notes scribble it down go get her books her books are highly recommended and they're so handy for a quick tool or a quick resource um and they have a glossary at the back for when to kind of what supplements for what and stuff like that so it's, it's it's hugely important so if you guys have enjoyed the episode at all please do tag myself and lara up on your stories please leave a review up on itunes the more reviews are up on itunes the more people i can continue to keep getting on so i hope you guys enjoyed the episode with lara bryden